Before we dig into God's Word this morning, just one quick announcement, uh, and this is for parents with kids from grades 3 to 12, okay? First of all, if you've got a going into grade three, four, and five, just want to give you a heads up that next fall we're going to be starting something for those kids uh, during a church service. So if you've got a third, fourth, fifth grader next year and you're thinking, oh boy, you know, I'm, I'm glad they're out here in the service, but maybe there's something that they can do and that's a, sort of a discipling tool that we're going to use. Uh, so our plans are next fall for them, for the kids. Uh, if they want to stay out here, they can, but just want to give you that heads up. Uh, for the older kids, um, grades seven, or I'm sorry, six through 12, if I could just meet with the parents really quick after church, underneath, uh, let's go with that milk face uh, poster back there, okay? Uh, so we'll go back there and I'll just meet with the parents real quick. This will take like 30 seconds, okay? That's all I got as far as, I forgot to tell Ann and that this morning uh, for an announcement, but uh, grab your Bibles, would you please? If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand, we'll get one to you. Uh, they're on the back table. We'll make sure you get one if you don't have one. And you can go ahead and open up to the Old Testament, the book of Esther. And you're thinking, where in the world is Esther? Well, just start digging through. Um, as a matter of fact, if you get to uh, the book of Job, not Job, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, you've gone too far. Just back it up one book and you'll find the book of Esther. Usually you can find Psalm pretty quickly. And just go backwards, two books. The book of Esther. And while you're turning there, over the next few weeks, we started last week with sort of an introduction to this series, and then we're going to continue for a couple more weeks. We could really call this a study through the book of Esther, but I decided to call it the Battle of the Sexes. Uh, I thought that would uh, make people want to come. That was it. Okay. So anyway, uh, that worked. You're here. So now we can tell you really what it's all about. This series is not about the difference between men and women, boys and girls. Okay. We all know that. I covered some of that last week, the difference between guys and girls and all that. Um, obviously, we're different, okay? Enough said. What this series is about is about how we bring our differences together to serve God together, to worship God together, to work together, to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to do greater things for His kingdom. That's what the series is about. And so you're going to hear uh, two key words, serve and together, in what I just said. So let me hear you say serve, together. Those are two key words. We're going to learn how together we can serve God. So there might be leadership uh, tips that might come out of this. There might be uh, various characteristic points. Uh, bottom line is we're going to find scripture that's going to challenge us to serve together. So we're going to continue the study in the book of Esther. Chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And last week we uncovered the setting of the book sort of the, when it was dated and a little bit about the background and the people in Persia and about the king, King Xerxes, okay? Um, and we found out that he was not a very good king. Matter of fact, he behaved very badly. And so we got to say in the book about how a king or a leader or a child of God should or should not behave. Uh, in regards to Xerxes' behavior, some people would probably say this, boys will be boys. You ever hear that phrase before? Eh, boys will be boys, right? The problem is we use that as an excuse for their behavior. That's the way boys going to be. Really? I don't think so. That's a saying, but it's not a reason for behavior. There's an excuse for not living the way God's commanded us. God's commanded us to live a certain way, and we don't live that way. We're being disobedient. We're not, well, boys will be boys. No, no, no. That's called disobedience. And we've got to understand that. And we found that out about King Xerxes. He was not behaving very well. So let's pick this up, uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
But after Xerxes' anger had cooled, he began thinking about Vashti, that was the queen, and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his attendants suggested, let's search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at Susa. Haggai, the eunuch in charge, will see that they're all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who pleases you most will be made queen instead of Vashti. And the, this advice was very appealing to the king. So he put the plan into effect immediately. Now let's give you a little bit of background here. If we were to read forward about 14 verses into uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 16, we would discover that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there is a period there of about four years that's not recorded. And during that four-year span, if you remember chapter 1, it's all about the big party and the king flexing his muscles because they're going to go into Greece and have this big battle. Well, the problem was the king went into battle in that four-year span and lost. He came home with his tail dragging and pretty upset and woe is me, a great king, and I lost a battle. It was embarrassing for him. So how do you pad a man when he's feeling defeated and down? Well, he wanted to cheer his heart up somehow, so his advisors surrounded him and said, well, how about sensual desire? That's a good way to make a man feel better about himself, right? So as a personal attendant thought this would help. So the plan was, let's assemble a harem of the most beautiful women in, in all the land. Remember, this is a big land. That number, according to historian Josephus said, was about 400 women. So 400 beautiful women were gathered together, and they were going to be beautified, so to say. And then after a time period, the king would sort of check them all out and make his decision as to who would be the most favorable. So we're talking basically here a Miss Persian Empire contest, okay? They're going to have a little contest. Who knows if they have the little sashes or not? I don't know. Uh, but they all came through and did everything they needed to do for this uh, big event here. And one of those 400 would be named the Queen of Persia. Pretty big thing. Let's read on, verse 5. Now at the fortress of Susa, there was a certain Jew named Mordecai. Let me hear you say Mordecai. He's a name we're going to become familiar with this in this book. Son of Jair. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, along with King Jehoiachin of Judah and many others. This man had a beautiful, let me hear you say beautiful and lovely, let me hear you say lovely, key words there, beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadashah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, were brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa, place in Haggai's care. Now, you can stop here for a second. Mordecai was a cousin of Esther. Now, when Esther's parents died, he looked at his cousin and said, I'm going to bring you to my own family. I'm going to adopt you. You are now going to be like my daughter. Not just cousin, but my daughter. When you adopt, and we've got a few in this church, uh, one especially that's adopted, okay? When you adopt, I call that extra love. Because you are reaching out to somebody that is not your flesh and blood and bringing them in as if they were your flesh and blood. It's a big responsibility. It's a huge act of love. And Mordecai looks and says, I'm doing this for you. I'm going to reach out in love and bring you into my family. And he does so. 
Now, they're part of a large Jewish community that was basically forced out of Judah and had to relocate. Now they're saying you can go back to Judah if you want, but Mordecai and Esther say we're staying put right here in Persia. Judah, when everybody went back to Judah, it was sort of, we'll just say this, it wasn't assembled very well. There was poor leadership. Things were sort of disarray, and it was a mess to begin with, a backward and wild place. So as we read this, we learn some very simple things about Esther. One, she was very loved. Here's the other thing we learned. I had you repeat the words, beautiful and lovely, right? She was a very beautiful woman. The Hebrew for these two words, beautiful and lovely, now listen very carefully, they mean this, beautiful and lovely. There's no hidden meaning, okay? A lot of times we find some really cool words in the Bible and they have this hidden meaning or they, they have some background to them. It's like, there's nothing on this. What is the writer telling you? She's a knockout, okay? High school guys, this is the girl you're like, uh, you know, she walks by and you just, what's my name? Okay. Um, she's beautiful and lovely, okay? Now, interesting side note, I will tell you this, okay? Esther, she has two names. When she was moved to Persia, all the Jews were given a second name in that, in, in that country, okay? Her first name was what? Hadassah, right? And then she was named Esther. Now, um, her Jewish name, Hadassah, means myrtle, as in Myrtle Beach, okay? So you can sort of figure out how that's spelling. Oh, boy. The Persian name, Esther, means star, okay? Now, no hidden meaning on any of this. Well, actually, this. In prophetic terms, if you look back in Isaiah and Zechariah, and you're reading through Scripture, let me read this verse to you. Um, it says that myrtle would replace the briars and the thorns of the desert, so depicting the Lord's forgiveness and acceptance of his people. So when it talked about myrtle, myrtle was then, again, sort of using that idea of it's a rotten situation here. Things are a mess. Thorns, briars, okay? But this myrtle that comes in replaces it with beauty and forgiveness. That's what her name means in Hebrew. And now she's given the name, though, which is Esther, okay? So uh, interesting a little bit about her to understand that her name was given meaning. I challenge you all, find your name uh, in one of those definition books. See what it means. See what the, the name behind it is. Um, and if you might find something pretty cool there. Verse 8, let's read on. Verse 8, it says, As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem to the fortress of Susa, placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her, provided her with beauty treatments. He assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now, it seems that Esther really didn't have a choice about this. She was picked. It wasn't like she was walking around presenting herself, hey, choose me, like sort of edging herself out like a big green you know, old girl cat fight, like, oh, I'm going to try to be better than you. You know what I'm saying? Girls, I know you don't do that. Ladies, I know you don't do that. You don't try to outdo each other. You don't try to outdress each other. You don't try to do any of that, right? Okay. Neither did Esther, okay? She was, she was just picked and taken, right? Now, Esther obtained fa favor with Haggai, the man who has authority over this harem. This is very important. In this, her godliness, when you look back and sometimes we say, what really caught his eye? Was it her true beauty or was it something else? I believe it's a combination. And why I say this? Because in Proverbs 3, 3 and 4, it says this, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Don't let 
faithfulness and kindness leave you. Don't let loyalty and being kind of, don't let that escape you, okay? Tie them around your neck. Write them down on the tablet of your heart. And when you do, you will find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Ladies, when you live out faithfulness, loyalty, and kindness, God's word is saying this, when you live that way, you'll find favor with God and man. You become beautiful in God's sight and in the sight of man. There's something lovely about a woman who is super kind and super faithful. Gentlemen, you know what I mean, right? It's in God's word. So when you sort of look at this, her reputation for being kind and faithful sort of showed on her face. And it's very easy for Haggai to look at her and say, I'm going to pick you. We're going to work extra with you. There's something special about you. I can't nail it, but there's something that's adding to your beauty. What Haggai didn't know is it was coming from the inside. You know, my father um, had a reputation as well. And as we sat around at, uh, during the week after my father passed away and we were sharing stories, something kept coming up with all my brothers and sisters that were sharing, and that is this. Wherever my dad went, he usually got a job or he had favor when he went in there, and so did us kids. Because dad was a hard worker, he was honest, a man of integrity, he was kind and loyal. So when one of us boys would go into a place, it was like, oh, is your dad Layton? Oh yeah, we'd like to hire you. Didn't have to look at a resume, didn't have to look at stuff, because of my dad's reputation, he looked at us with favor. When you live like your heavenly father, faithfulness and kindness and loyalty, guess what? You'll find favor with others and with God. There's something beautiful about her godliness, Esther's godliness, but it was both physical and spiritual. And again, when you live out your faith, don't be surprised if you find favor at times with people. It's like, wow, I can't believe they wanted me to do this, or they, they accepted me into this, or they treated me so much different. I don't understand why. Probably because of your spiritual faithfulness. And because of this favor, Haggai gave Esther special beauty preparations beyond her allowance, more than what she deserved. He also gave her seven choice maidservants to look after her beauty needs. So as you think about this, Esther was what? Beautiful and lovely to begin with, right? Now she's going to look like one of those after pictures from the glamour photo studios, you know what I'm talking about, okay? But this is how she looks all the time now. She's got seven ladies helping her all the time, continuing to uh, help her in her treatments, okay? Let's look at verse 10 and 11. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background, for Mordecai had told her not to. Every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to ask about Esther to find out what was happening to her. Now, let me pause for a second and say this. Normally, there's not a good reason for us as Christians to hide our faith. Okay? Because as you're reading it, you're thinking, why is Mordecai saying, don't tell anybody that you're of the Jewish background. Don't tell anybody about your faith. I'm telling you, there's, there's normally never a good reason for hiding the fact that we're Christian. Matter of fact, far too many Christians, we act as if we're secret agents. We don't want anybody to know about our faith, right? Um, that, that's an issue, okay? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, he said this, everyone who acknowledges me public here on earth, I will also acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Then he goes on to say this, but everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny you before my Father in heaven. 
Listen, we, we can't live a life of denial of our faith with other people and expect Jesus to bless us. You can't. So when you're looking at this situation saying, what's going on here? We're probably recognizing here in this situation that God may have us be discreet about our Christian identity for a certain moment and a certain time and conceal it then and then bring it up at the right opportune time to do even greater things, which was the case in this situation. Mordecai had been given wisdom by God. Wait, wait, wait. Don't reveal your identity yet. And as we learned a few chapters down the road, now's the time to reveal identity. There was a special time when this was going to happen. And God gave him the wisdom to know when. Here's something else that grabbed my attention reading this. These are just two side notes, really nothing to do with the sermon, okay? But here's another thing. Um, every day Mordecai paced in front of the courtyard of the women's quarters. Every day. He wanted to learn about Esther's welfare. Um, dads, moms, especially those, you know, think back to when your kid left. Let's just do it this way. When you first dropped your firstborn off at the school, okay, first day of school, did you cry, moms? I, I was like, yeah, okay. Um, did you drive around the school thinking, I bet they're missing me now, <laughs> right? That happened? How about as they got older, their first staying at somebody's house overnight for the first time? You're probably like texting, are they doing okay? Well, that might have been a few years ago. You're calling you know, were you just praying? Were you begging? I hope they're doing okay. They're probably missing me. I probably should go see what they're doing. Did you drive around the block then to see if they were waiting to be picked up? Or maybe it's keep getting older. They're heading off to college. Oh, that could have been a tough one, right? That's going to be tough. Oh, what am I going to do? I got to be checking on them. Now, thanks to technology, we're Skyping. We can text. We can FaceTime. It's like, hey, you're looking good. And after day two, they're probably not accepting your calls anymore because they want their independence, right? So this, what does that express? What does all that express, though? Love, right? You love your kids so much, you just want to make sure they're okay. That's the picture of Mordecai here, a father's love again. Again, it's adopted father, right, or adopted child. He's outside the course. I wonder, I wonder how she's doing today. I wonder what they're doing today. I wonder which eyebrows are plucking now, you know. Um, how are they making her look beautiful today? She's already beautiful and lovely. Um, he's just pacing, right, wondering what's going on. As I thought about this, I thought um, Mordecai's interest in Esther's state, just besides this, showed a great love and concern for her because he knew this could be potentially a dangerous place for her. Oh, he knew what's going on. This wasn't going off to school. Okay, there's 400 women being basically uh, beautified to be brought before one king who has many wives already, uh, and she's going to be picked to be the oh, next wife and queen on top of it. Well, in all this, it was his responsibility, not just as a cousin, but as an adopted father, but then as this, a man of God to look out for his daughter. Let me ask you this, again, side note from the sermon. How are we doing in looking out for one another? How are we doing in praying for one another? Maybe, you know, we aren't supposed to pace outside the school or the workplace for those we care for, but do we pray for them daily? Again, I'm, I'm thankful when I get the emails uh, or the reminders from Rhonda, you know, are we praying for one another? Our job is to intercede in prayer for one another. How are we doing with that? 
So let's, let's sort of get back on track here. If you're taking notes, here's the first life lesson. There is something beautiful about living a godly life. That's the first thing I want you to hear about this chapter. There's something beautiful about living a godly life, okay? Beauty treatments, um, you want to beautify yourself, let's work on loyalty and kindness, okay? That's the first beauty treatment all of us uh, can work on, okay? Verse 12, let's pick it up and keep going. Verse 12, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed. She was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. You hear 12 months? Wow. Okay. Six months of oil and myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When a time came for her to go in to the king, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to enhance her beauty. Well, that evening she was taken to the king's private rooms. The next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she'd be under the care of Shazgaz, another of the king's eunuchs. She would live there for the rest of her life, never going to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Now, Persia was one of those famous countries where they had these uh, very aromatic perfumes, and ancient customs for preparations for brides, which meant ritualistic baths, plucking of the eyebrows, painting of the hands and feet with henna, facial makeup, applications of a beautifying paste all over the body, and meant to basically lighten the color of the skin, remove spots and blemishes. Six months of one, six months of another, one full year of all of this, okay? Big deal, right? Sounds wonderful, right? Constant year of spa, right? Some of you ladies are like, oh, that'd be fun for a day, then two days. Okay, seriously, 12 months? Wouldn't you get tired of that? But I want you to think about it. This is not all beautiful. I sort of hinted at this earlier. Let me come back to it now. This was not the greatest of all situations. Because as we talked about last week, women were property to these men in this custom. It was not a delightful thing. The destiny of these women should be considered one evening with the king. And after that one evening with the king, if you're chosen, if it's the queen, right? But let's talk about the other 399 who lost. They were basically banished to the harem, and they would then maybe become a wife or a concubine of the king. In other words, you would be used for the king's pleasure whenever you want. That's it. Your piece of property. You could never marry. You were going to be perpetually a widow the rest of your life. Not good, right? A horrible situation. Verse 15, let's read on. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Again, when you are living a life of obedience and humbleness, and kindness, the favor is seen, it's attractive. Okay? Verse 16, when Esther was taken to King Xerxes on the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign, the king loved her more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head, declared her queen instead of Ashti. In celebration of the occasion, he gave a banquet in Esther's honor for all of his princes and servants, giving generous gifts to everyone, declaring a public festival for the provinces. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem, Mordecai had become a palace official. Esther continued to keep her nationality and family background a secret, she was still following Mordecai's orders. 
just as she did when she was living in home, still remaining loyal, still remaining obedient. Esther's humble wisdom, again, as I referenced, was shown in a way that she allowed her custodian of the women to assist her in preparation. What do I need to do? Okay, I'll do that. How should I act? Okay, I'll do that. What advice do you have for me? I'll take that. She could have, now think about this. She was a very beautiful and lovely person. She could have flaunted that beauty. She could have been very proud. And she could have walked around like, I know I'm beautiful. And so I'm going to treat the rest of you as you're not. She could have been that way. But she wasn't. Her faith, her background led her to live a different lifestyle and to live a different behavior. She obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. This, again, was because of her godliness and her beauty. Let's be honest, okay? Let's, let's, be, let's step back from all this and be honest, okay? And what is that? Beauty often gains people favor, right? Because somebody is a knockout or they're really good or he's really handsome or she's really beautiful, a lot of times they get favor. They might get picked over something. They get chosen this or they get this award. It just happens, right? Let's be honest about that. You just look across all the magazines at your checkout lines in the grocery store. They put beautiful people on the front of magazines. That's the way this world works. And it's a fact. It's every, what every Christian, we as a Christian, we have to step back and say, you know what? It's true. That's what happens. That's the way this world is, right? But as Christians, we also then need to step up and say, but you know what? What do I need to teach my kids about this? That although in this world, beauty might put you on the front of a magazine or get you an award or get you favor with people, what really matters is what's on the inside, right? As Christian parents and grandparents, it's our duty, it's our obligation to make sure that young people know, hey, beauty, okay, that's great, but what really matters is what's going on on the inside. The physical is just a covering to the shell. It's what's on the inside that matters. You remember the story in 1 Samuel 16? Samuel's going around trying to find the next king. Saul's going to be basically uh, taken off the throne. And he tells Samuel, I want you to go find the next king. So he goes to the house of Jesse, and he's looking for all these boys. And he's like, oh, man, that's a strapping young man. Oh, he's handsome. And God kept saying, nope, nope. Like, Samuel's like, God, what's going on here? Look at these guys, man. They're handsome. They've got to be the next king, right? Tall, broad shoulders. Nope. What did God tell Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Don't judge by his appearance or height. I rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. Looks on the inside. You know, the temptation is to judge ourselves and do this, because this is what happens then. As we maybe are here hearing this message this morning, is we stand in the mirror and we say, oh, man, look at myself. We can go two ways with this. We can say, I'm so much prettier or more handsome than this person, and our pride can swell. Or we can say, I'm not as good looking, or I'm not as beautiful as this person, and so we treat ourselves like trash. I'm not as good as them, right? We can go one or two ways on that. We judge ourselves by our parents on the outside. We do everything we can to beautify ourselves. Think about how much money we've spent this year maybe on clothing and makeup and treatments and all that kind of stuff to make ourselves look good. We want to look good because we look good. We feel good, right? Esther was beautiful, but she was also beautiful where? On the inside and in how she loved her Lord. 
because of the great favor that Esther obtained with the king, Esther was selected to be the queen sitting next to Xerxes. She's now placed in a position to do something down the road. She doesn't know what it is yet. But so far, I want you to think about her life. She was a child of Jewish exiles. Their parents died, raised by a cousin in a foreign and very hostile land. She's taken by compulsion of the king's harem, found favor with all whom she met, finally selected to be the queen of the realm. God had his hand on the life of Esther since day one. But if you were to look at certain parts of her life, you'd say, this is crazy. What's going to happen to her, right? Oh, this isn't good. Well, this is okay. Are you following me on this? See how her life is sort of strange, right? Let me tell you something. God had his hand in her life from day one. Let me hear you say day one. Look at the person in your life. Say, God's in your life too. Oh yeah, absolutely. From day one, God's been active in your life too. And maybe you look at your life now and your plan and saying, but how? I don't get it. Do you know what my life is like? Some of you can stand up here right now and give a testimony how God's been active in your life. You would have no problem. And there might be some of you in here like, I don't know how God's active in my life. This remarkable course of events was not an accident, okay? It wasn't just because of luck or fortune or Esther's good looks or sparkling personality. God has a plan. God has a plan. And Esther is part of it. Psalm 75, 6 through 7 says this, For exaltation comes from neither the east nor the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. God puts down one and lifts up another. God has a plan for how he works with people. Proverbs 16, 16.3, 16.9. Okay? When you look at those scriptures up there, check out what they have to say about God's plans. We can make our own plans, but the Lord gives the right answer. Commit your actions to the Lord, and your plans will succeed. We make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. That's Proverbs 69. It's one of my favorite ones. Let me read that again. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. God has a plan. God has a plan. You know, we have a place in God's plan. Where, wherever you're at right now, wherever you're at right now, there's a purpose for it. You might be making a tough decision today. You might be in the midst of a rotten circumstance today. You might have had some great fortune come upon you. You maybe have a new friend. You have a new relationship. You have something new that's going on in life that's exciting too. I'm going to tell you, whether it's good or bad, that's part of God's plan for you. He's got purpose for you. It may last for a little bit or it might be part of a longer thing. Perhaps it's a short season, a long season. I don't know. But God has a reason. So do we go to God daily and ask, say this, God, I'm coming to you today to submit my plans to you, to submit my steps to you. Do we do that? Or do we say, hey God, uh, I'm planning on doing this today. Would you please bless that? Which one is it? I want to encourage us all to go to God and say, God, what's your plans for me today? What do you want me to do? That's what we've tried to do in this church. For how many years have we said, boy, what should we do with the building? Should we buy a building? Should we, we keep going around and guys, man, you guys are dragging your feet forever. I'll tell you why we drag our feet. Because we don't put our feet in the wrong steps. We want to make sure we're walking in the way that God wants us to walk. And sometimes we walk this way and just, oh, that's, that's a good direction. But now I'm going to change and go back this way now. We now have a building. We, we own a building. And we're going to work on it. We're going to renovate it. We'll move into it in a couple months. 
Hopefully a year from now, we'll add on to it. Maybe less than a year, I don't know. It's part of a plan. And we should be excited about that plan. We sit there and say, okay, Pastor Ben and Danielle, they came in, now they're going. It's like, oh, what's, that's part of the plan. So what's the next part of the plan? I don't know. But God's got it. And it's okay. You know, next week we're welcoming uh, somebody who's going to come in and lead worship with us. Maybe he's, I don't know. That's why we pray, God, is this the way to go? You know, this point in the story of Esther, we see the outworking of his plan, and we see this. God can use the evil of a man. You know, see, God didn't make Xerxes drunk, okay, and make him demand that his queen present herself in an immodest way before everybody. And God allowed the actions of a wicked man to fulfill a purpose of a greater plan. You know, we find assurance and truth that no other person, no matter how evil they are, can defeat God's plan. You know that? No matter what terrible thing comes your way, no matter who steps in your life and just makes your day bad, they can't mess up God's plan. They can't do it. God's got a plan for you. The question is this. The question is this. Let's wrap this up, okay? Are you ready to walk victoriously in God's plan today? Are you choosing to live obedient today, right now where you're at? Are you choosing to be faithful, focusing on the inward beauty first and let that spill out into an outward beauty? Do you realize that God has a plan for you? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that eventually, if not now, God's going to bless you and show you favor? Do you believe that? If you don't, today's the day to start believing that. Today's the day to say, today, God, I, I'm going to look in the mirror and start understanding, God, who have you created me to be? You've created me with purpose and plan. You may say, hey, look at me. I'm no Esther. I'm no beauty queen, right? Okay, but think, but God's saying, look, I'm not looking on the outside. I'm looking on the inside right now at you. And what I see is beauty because I created it. God's looking inside right now, and I'm thinking about this. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you sit here this morning, you've confessed with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and guess what? God's Spirit lives in you. And if God's Spirit is living in you, you are the most beautiful person ever. Let that spill out. Let God's Spirit spill out and show everyone the beauty and the change that He brings about in a life that is obedient and faithful. You know, I came across a picture recently that reminded me of this truth. I don't know if we can put that picture up on the screen. We might have to kill the lights uh, so we can see it. Thanks, Julian. Appreciate that. I heard this. Um, well, we'll show you that picture first. It's from, obviously from Scripture. Oh, while they're getting it, let me read this quote to you. Bruce Barton said this, Nothing splendid has ever been achieved except by those who dare believe that something inside of them was superior to circumstances. Let me read this quote again before you take a look at that picture. Nothing splendid has ever been achieved except by those who dare believe that something inside of them was superior to circumstances. You know what's inside of me? God's Spirit. You know what's around me? Circumstances that can make or break my day, right? But you know what? I can succeed over that. Why is that? Because of what's inside of me. When I saw this picture, it's sort of hard to see here, okay? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live by trusting in the Son of God 
who loves me and he gave himself for me. And if you can't see too well, it's a picture of man looking in a full-length mirror. And what does he see? Jesus Christ. That should be what we see when we look in the mirror. Jesus Christ working through us. The problem is we don't look at it. We don't look at ourselves and we don't see the value of what's going on. March 24th, 1975, a gentleman by the name of Chuck Wepner. You may have heard of him before uh, because he was a boxer. Not a famous boxer. He's boxing back in the day of uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. And those were sort of big name boxers in the 70s and 80s. But in 1975, March 24th, Chuck Chuck Wepner was going to fight the then heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali in Cleveland, Ohio. So in preparation for this, you think about this. Who is this guy, Chuck? Well, he was actually a bouncer at a bar. He was a brawler. He fought. He had no specific kind of boxing plans. He took more punches in the face, and he just sustained punches and lasted long. He had only bought, uh, fought 51 times, won 37 of those times, lost 14 of those times. But in those 37 wins, he actually had um, some knockouts. But again, no great styles, just a brawler. Easy to hit, could take a punch, right? He was knocked out by George Foreman in three rounds. He got knocked out by Sonny Liston. And actually, after that fight, he had to go to the hospital, get 72 stitches on his face. Took a beating, right? Why am I telling you this story? Well, because this fight with Muhammad Ali was pretty amazing. Muhammad Ali is going to get $1.5 million for stepping in that ring. Remember, this is 75. This isn't, you know, what we heard about the last fight recently. That was too many millions of dollars, okay? Webner is only going to get $100,000. But this is his biggest fight ever, so he's like, $100,000 just to step in a fight with Muhammad Ali? I'll, I'll step in, I'll go down, I don't care. I'm going to get $100,000, right? So he trained and he trained hard, though, because he didn't want to lose. In the ninth round, Wetmer actually knocked down Muhammad Ali, but Muhammad Ali says, well, I tripped on those shoestrings on my shoes, whatever. Um, Muhammad Ali knocked him down three times. He went back and forth. Last round, 19 seconds to go, Muhammad Ali connects, knocks Chuck Wetmer down. About the nine-second count, the umpire, the referee's counting down. He gets up before he calls an official knockout, gets up. With just a few seconds left. Referee looks at him and says, we're done. He calls it. So he calls on a technical knockout. Match is over. Now, why do I share that with you? Because meanwhile, about three time zones away out in California, an out-of-work actor is watching this on closed-circuit TV, and he watches this boxing match. He gets inspired. So for the next three days, he just sits down and he's just writing a story. Okay? And he gets done writing that story, and he's like, I'm going to put this into a screenplay. So for the next 24 hours, he writes a screenplay. Now, he takes that screenplay, and he goes studio to studio trying to sell it. You know, this would be a great movie. This would be a great movie. He keeps getting rejected, rejected, rejected. Finally, Sylvester Stallone walks into the right studio and hands it to him, and they make the movie Rocky. Okay? Now, when they give him that screenplay, they said to him, this is what we're going to do. We're going to offer you $400,000 for the screenplay. Uh, which today's equivalence is about $900,000, so shy of a million, okay? Sylvester Stallone says, no thanks. Um, how about I star in the movie and I get 1% of the gross profits? They're like, okay. Now, understand back in this time, the studio believed we may not even make this a film, and if we even make it a film, it may not even make a profit. The movie was completed in eight days, okay? After eight days, they got the movie. He made $1,260 for those eight days of work. However, it became the top film of 1976, uh, earned $225 million, received 10 Academy Awards and nominations, won three Oscars. Uh, His movies over the years then generated $4 billion. 
All he wanted was 1%. He believed in his screenplay so much, he said, I would like to take the role, I'll just take 1%. I believe that this is going to be valuable. He believed in what he could do, right? Chuck Webner, on the other hand, they, they came to him, they said, well, you've got to sell your rights to the movie since this story's about you. They offered him $70,000 or 1%. He took the $70,000 thinking, this ain't going to be good, right? It's about me. I'll take $70,000 money up front. Had he taken the 1%, he would have grossed over $8 million. Instead, he took the $70,000. By the way, he is, uh, I think he's 74 now, working in a liquor bar or liquor store. Here's the thing I want you to hear out of this in conjunction with today's message. Both of them, those men uh, had the opportunity to understand truth, and that is this. We have value. We have purpose. We have plan. But only one of those two men said, I believe it, and I'm going to invest it. And the other one was like, I really don't believe that I have much value or purpose. They both had the same choice to choose value and purpose. Only one took it, and one walked away pretty happy. I want to challenge you with this. Don't look in the mirror and reject the value that God's given you. You've got to look beyond the superficial and look what's going on in here. If you are new in Christ, you should be looking in that mirror and seeing Jesus every day. That's incredibly valued. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 11.10, As surely as the truth of Christ in me, no one in all Greece will ever stop me from boasting about this. Do we boast about that? Do we walk around saying, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Do you wake up in the morning and say, Christ lives in me. I have incredible value. Today, whatever happens, purpose and plan. It's all part of God's purpose, all part of his plan. Christ in me. Would you please stand? Paul continues to say, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. Not only is Christ in you, but he wants to work through you. He wants to work through you. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is truth, family. That is truth. Christ lives in you. You have incredible value. You have incredible purpose. Let's live that way. Let's live that way. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. God, I thank you so much for this church, for the opportunity to worship you, to come here, Lord, and say, God, make me new today. There might be somebody in this room right now that has never placed their faith in you. They didn't realize that they're loved by the God of this universe. Or maybe they did. They just have never accepted that. It's because our sin, our mistakes, the junk in our lives sometimes really messes our vision and we don't see truth. We don't see your love. God, thank you for forgiving us. Lord, today, as a church body, Lord, come into this church right now. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Forgive us right now. If there's people in this room right now that are just struggling with certain sins, Lord, forgive us. If we're struggling with, with self-doubt and, and, and looking at ourselves, saying, I have no value, I'm worthless, I'm ugly, Lord, forgive us for saying those things. If we think we have no purpose in life, that we're just here to make somebody else you know, happy by the, how rotten we feel about ourselves, forgive us, Lord. Lord, you've created us 
beautiful on the inside with purpose and plan. So God, forgive us for any other way we've thought. Lord, we ask that as you forgive us that your spirit, Lord, be in us. Live through us. And give us strength to walk in victory on a daily basis. Even when we're looking in the mirror and we don't see you, remind us, Lord, you live in us. You bring victory to us. Lord, we thank you for truth. God, help us to take truth, not only to live it, but to share it, to boast in your strength and your strength alone, to give you all the glory. God, we love you and praise you. We sing this song now and worship to you. In thy name we pray. Amen.